wonderful chapter together today. Um, I mentioned to several people on Monday, after reading the passage which we'll have in front of us today, uh, at least 10 times I was just stuck and had n- did not know where to start. It, it just felt like these all being the words of Jesus himself, it was probably better to come up and just read them and say, let's have communion now uh, instead of a sermon. But we'll do our best to preach <clears throat> these words. And we know all the words in the Bible, uh, not just the red ones, are inspired and infallible. The black ones are just as inspired as the red ones, but these all in our text are red this morning. So stand with me uh, and let's uh, read John chapter 5 beginning with verse 30. Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing now, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But, you, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is your words uttered by the very ones who hated you, who wanted you dead, and eventually killed you that we read and study this morning. Some of them are hard, but will you help us see your heart a little clearer, and with that, love and serve you a little more faithfully is our prayer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
As you've hopefully seen over the last few months in the Gospel of John, it is a truly amazing book. Over 70% of the content of the book of John is unique only to the book of John as it relates to the other Gospels. It has been a treasure for the Christian Bible students and scholars for centuries upon centuries. That is partially the reason in 1952, one of the greatest classical linguists and scholars ever to live, Oxford professor E.V. Ryu, was commissioned to translate and asked to translate without prejudice the four Gospels starting with the book of John. Ryu is still regarded as one of the greatest Homer scholars that's ever lived. You may have read him without even knowing it, for he was published in the Penguin Classics, the translations of both the Iliad and the Odyssey from the 1940s, and they're still in print today. He was 60 years old at the time, a lifelong avowed skeptic and agnostic. Rio was... Uh, Ryu began his task by the words of his son, who was also a classical scholar, but a Christian, saying, it will be very interesting to see what Father makes of the Gospels. It will still be more interesting to see what the Gospels make of Father. Isn't that always the case uh, when we come to the Scriptures? What they make of us, not what we make of them. Today we finish the fifth chapter of John, and as we recall, it started with him healing that man paralyzed for 38 years. This ended with a confrontation of the Jewish leaders that we continued last week with Jesus' explanation of his authority and his oneness with the Father. And we end the passage this week with Jesus' chilling words And can you even imagine the audacity of Jesus saying that he alone had the authority to execute eternal judgment? As a matter of fact, he says, I'm going to call every person that's ever lived alive by my voice. Judge and separate them both to eternal life and to eternal death. Look how our text ended last week at verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Just as we saw throughout the book of Acts, we can almost hear the gnashing of teeth at those words. The hatred. It was his authority that they hated. And as verse 18 of John 5 reminds us, That is why they killed him and set out to kill him. But Jesus does something unique and unexpected in our text this morning. Jesus, in our passage, brilliantly brings four witnesses to his defense. And by doing so, he accomplishes two things. First, according to their own Jewish and Messianic or or Jewish and Mosaic law, the witnesses for uh, Christ 
were not enough just to have his words. The witnesses needed to be established by one or two witnesses. And honestly, they were not bound to believe what he said, for the law was clear that testimony needed to be by more than one witness. This is bared out in both Deuteronomy chapter 19 and Numbers chapter 35 as examples. But even more germane to the cause of the death penalty they sought against Jesus Christ, Jesus also gives them exactly what they needed to put himself to death. Listen to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, the one, is who, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So here are the witnesses for the defense. The charge... The defendant, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, claims to be one with God the Father. And he claims that he has the sole authority to personally raise every human being at the end of the age, judge every human being, and sentence them either to eternal life or death. The witnesses, witness one, we see John the Baptist in verses 32 through 35. Witness two is Jesus' own miracles that he's performed in verse 36. Witness three are the verbal words of God the Father himself, verses 37 and 38. And the last, the star witness, witness four, the word of God in verses 39 through 47. As any good lawyer would, Jesus presents these witnesses in logical order and importance to his own case. From first, John, the greatest human being yet born, he says. The second, the miracles, the greatest acts ever performed on earth. To finally, the audible words of God himself, the Father, leading to the final and most powerful and most important witness, the eternal written word of God. With this as the background, the first two difficult verses of our text can be understood. Look at John 5, 30 and 31. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What does he mean by that? Calvin reminds us here that these, these were the words, quote, of the devil Arius and his followers' proof text for denying the deity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Arius argued, Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own, but must do the will of my Father, making Jesus a lesser or created being. Calvin says, Words like that are pointless to engage with. They are obtuse arguments never meant for our minds to be occupied one minute with such trifles. So we won't. It's obvious that Jesus is just saying here the opposite. He must do the will of his Father 
because they have the same will, as we saw in the previous text. But it is verse 31 that has been most problematic to many people. Let's look at it again. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. As we alluded earlier, Jesus is not saying what he is saying is not true. He's simply saying that his testimony without other witnesses will not be taken as true. For the law says that things are established by two or three witnesses. So Jesus says, here comes four. The four most powerful witnesses and defense anyone could have. Number one, John the Baptist. As Professor Ryu began his translation work at Oxford, he planned to document his work and with detailed notes, interviews, and personal testimony throughout his project. Being fully versed in, in all the nuances of classical Greek, the Greek of Homer, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, Professor Ryu would, be, for the first time in his career, literally have his hands on all available extant manuscripts of the New Testament. He said, I wanted to approach them with fresh, untainted eyes, like those recently discovered and first examined Old Testament manuscripts found in the caves of Qumran in Palestine. Of course, he's referring to the Dead Sea Scrolls. He said, I want to lay my eyes on these fresh and see them without any, uh, anything hindering or causing me to have preconceived notions. Oh, that's how we should always come to the Scriptures, brothers and sisters, with anticipation, with fresh eyes. Even, the, even this morning, let's attempt to do the same thing with the words of Jesus and his witnesses, first being John the Baptist. We recall Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, that of these born of women, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Quite a testimony of Jesus about John, his cousin. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What was, Jesus's witness, what was John's witness of Jesus? Look back with me at John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. A few pages back. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man whose ranks before me, because he was, was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And what is John's witness? Verse 34, 
And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus reminds them that they have already sent for John and were convinced that he was a prophet, and they were. Back to our text in 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth. Not that, my, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Witness one was John the Baptist. Witness two, verse 36. But the testimony that I give is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This is so vitally important, brothers and sisters. Jesus tells us right here what millions of frustrated, sad, confused believers, and maybe some of us here today, need to be reminded of. The reason for miracles is, quote, they bear witness about me that the Father sent me. Most Christians are not even aware that most Bible miracles happened in only three relatively short briefs of time in the Scriptures. In the days of Moses and Joshua, during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and at the time of Christ and his apostles. None of those periods lasted more than 60, 70 years. Each of them saw a, prolific, a proliferation of miracles unheard of in any other times. Each of them were unique. And even during those special times, the miracles were not exactly the order of the day. The miracles that happened involved men who were extraordinary messengers from God, Moses, Elijah, El Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles, terrifying as witnesses, just as the Lord in our passage today they knew what he was saying was true. Because of the miracles, they knew he was sent by God. Isn't this what Nicodemus says in John 3? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. As alluded to a couple of weeks ago, as a kid, I wondered, does Catherine Kuhlman really heal. If so, I need to tell Mr. Miller about this. I thought, should I, write her, should I write her a letter or send money like they are asking? If I send her money, could Mr. Miller possibly walk again? This is not the last time that we're going to be addressing miracles. We have the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water next week in the first portion of John chapter 6, which we'll go through in the next three consecutive weeks. Does God heal and does God perform miracles today? Yes. He is God and he has given even given, given us instructions on how to pray and how to anoint the sick in the New Testament. He's told us this. 
And we should take that way more seriously than many do. But he and his ways are sovereign. The last word we need to have on this is Hebrews 1. 1. God, who in sundry ways, many ways, and in diverse manners, different manners, spoke in times past through his prophets, but now he is and is speaking to us through his Son. Jesus has told us here what his second witness is. It's the very works of God that only he has done. And we'll get into that more deeply next week. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he himself has borne witness about me. The third witness is the testimony of God the Father himself. Look at verse 37. The Father who sent me, he has himself borne witness about me. It's difficult to decipher exactly what Jesus is talking about here and what he means. Surely he could mean the words of the Father, this is my beloved Son of whom I am well pleased. But we know from the text that it was probably only likely that John, Jesus, and maybe a couple of the uh, disciples even heard those words. They were They were like Charlie Brown's teacher, to everybody else, the text says. But they heard it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But most likely, he is talking about the father's testimony that is so closely related to his fourth witness, and that's the word of God. We see this in how Jesus adds a word of sharp rebuke here in verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, but his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The voice of God, of course, is Christ himself. And the form of God is also Christ. And as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, we are all just as blinded. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The hostile Jewish leadership have failed to see Jesus in the voice and the form of God. They have failed through unbelief to even see him in the very thing they prescribe to love and obey so much. And we turn finally to Jesus' last witness. Witness for the eternal word of God. As Dr. Ryu dug into those manuscripts to do his translation work and read the Gospel of John for the first time, by his own admission, he says, quote, When I first came to the New Testament Greek manuscripts, after living in the classics, I had a frightful sense of being extremely let down. He said, It was like having read 
and loved Shakespeare and then going to reading the vicar's letter in the parish magazine. But, he says, the more I read, the more I studied, quote, yes, it was on a much lower level, a much smaller, even micro-vocabulary, but I couldn't put them down. They were just simply brilliant. Jesus' words here speak for themselves in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness of me. Let you refuse to come that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Oh, what a stinging review. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Are we not susceptible to the same error? Take the man at the observation deck at the Sears Tower. We've been there. And we were there on a Friday night, and this was the scene. The sun is setting in the west. Uh, The Cubs are playing just a few miles north at Wrigley Field, and we see the lights. And then we gaze to the east, and we see these beautiful orange and yellow hues of the setting sun rippling over Lake Michigan. And we hear the voice of the one at the observation deck. Oh, honey, come quickly, he says to his wife. You're not going to believe this. And she, the wife hurry, scurries over. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No, it is breathtaking. No, silly. Look at the composition of this window. This glass is one of a kind. The thickness, how it's attached. How do they even attach this? Oh, the tint is absolutely perfect. Admiring the details of the window and missing what the window was designed to do is show the grandeur of the, of the outside. Do we treat the Bible this way? Like some magic talisman or super fortune cookie? Ten minutes a day, I'm good to go. A spot of psalm here, a dab of proverb there. Are we missing Jesus Christ in the Scriptures? And so many sermons are like this, aren't they? With Jesus Christ and the Gospel nowhere to be found. The six lessons of the leadership of Egypt in the wilderness. David's battle is your battle. These are actual sermon titles. Prayer and getting what God wants to give you. And of course, your best life now. Jesus says the scriptures bear witness of me. Seminary students and pastors, I think, are at the most risk here. The languages, the deep, systematic, and biblical theology, the intricacies of the text are thrilling, no doubt. But if they are not leading even the ministers to ultimately loving 
the excellency and the beauty and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in deeper and deeper ways, if he is not continually increasing and we are not continually decreasing, are we any better, brothers and sisters, than these that Jesus is addressing? Let these tragic words of Jesus just sink in a bit in verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from the people. And is there any more sadder words in the New Testament than these? I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Yet they claim to know and love God's word. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided or I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can we preach the Bible and not preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Jews were counting on the keeping of the law, the law of Moses to save them. And Jesus ends our section with another stinging rebuke. The last witness, the very word they say they believe will be the witness against them in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, the one that they loved, the one that they obey, the one that they have made all of the rules around the Sabbath and the keeping of the Mosaic law. On Moses, on whom you have set your hope, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? For they testify of me. As we close tonight, uh, uh, this morning, just one more thought. Why was Jesus so adamant about the word of God being the ultimate witness for him? I I want you to take away this thought. And we don't often think this way, but the word of God and Jesus Christ are so inseparable that Jesus Christ is the Word, and the Word is Jesus Christ. Think about this. Number one, both have the same two natures. Jesus was fully human, and Jesus was fully divine. And the Word of God is both fully divine yet fully human in its expression and its writing. Both are received for salvation and save. John 1, to as many as received him, who as many as received Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. James 1.21, receive with meekness the engrafted word that is able to save your souls. Both will judge 
the world. We saw this, didn't we, in John 5, 27 earlier. Jesus will judge the world. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And John 12, 48, the Word of God will judge the earth. Both are eternal and live forever. Psalm 119, we know Jesus. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heaven. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And finally, and even remarkably, they have the same name. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no man knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. A lifelong skeptic, a lifelong agnostic, Professor Ryu was nearing the completion of his monumental translation of the Gospels. He early on came to the conclusion, as he completed his work, that he would not make a translation. He said, there is only one main English version at this time, and another one is not needed, because with my work I have seen, it is already so accurate, I cannot improve. I will make a paraphrase, which he did. When asked, completing the work, how did this affect him? This is what Professor Ryu said. Oh, it, pause, 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 as he's collecting himself. It has changed me. This work has changed me. And I have come to the conclusion, and more than that, the firm conviction that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and the Son of God. They are indeed the Magna Carta of the human spirit. He was baptized and joined the Anglican church with his son. Oh, skeptic, possible agnostic here, perhaps a doubter here this morning. You have the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, and you have the four greatest testimonies and witnesses you could have. John the Baptist, the greatest human that had ever lived. The miracles of Christ. The words of God the Father. And the living seal of God himself in his word. All the witnesses bear the same testimony. 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that there is salvation in his name. Doubt no more. Will you come to Christ this morning? Let's pray. Almighty and merciful God, we stand again amazed, simply amazed at your grace. We stand with the apostles again this morning and say, where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Keep us sincere. Keep us diligent. Keep us humble as we approach your words, as we make and remake our lives around you and your word. Will you help us believe what we read? In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, let's rise for our